Welcome back, everyone, to Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. I'm your host, Kellen Cavanero. Today, our guest is Dr. Richard Daneman, Ph.D. Rich is an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, in the Departments of Pharmacology and Neurosciences. He is a leading expert in the blood-brain barrier field. In this conversation, Rich and I talk about his lab's recent publication revealing a novel role of fibroblasts in the central nervous system. We dive deep into the lineage tracing technique that was critical for the discovery his lab made in this report. We also talk a lot about Rich's philosophies related to science and his mentorship style. You can find references to the article as well as the Daneman Lab website in the show notes. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Daneman. All right, Rich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You published a very cool paper recently describing the role of fibroblasts in the central nervous system. Could you tell me, first, what is a fibroblast? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure anyone knows what a fibroblast is. In the central nervous system, I think for a long time, people did not know what a, what a fibroblast was, what, that a fibroblast was even present. They were largely unexplored within the central nervous system. People had shown that they were there, but they were basically ignored in, 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 the, in the research. Um, so within the central nervous system, I guess they're connective tissue cells. They do a variety of things, uh, including sensing stretch, secreting extracellular matrix, interacting with immune cells. I'm not sure there's any one thing that can describe what a fibroblast does. They kind of do a whole series of different things that keep, the, keep a tissue and organ working together. And in the brain, they're found in a few different spots. They're found in the meningeal linings of the brain and also in the perivascular spaces uh, adjacent to large blood vessels like arterioles and, and venules. I'm not sure there's any one great definition for them. They do a whole series of different things, both in health, just to, to regulate the natural homeostasis of a tissue and organ, but also in, in response to all sorts of different stimuli, whether it be disease stimuli or whether it be changes in diet or exercise or different things. So one of the real main things that they do is regulate the extracellular matrix of, of the given tissue and organ or where they are within the given tissue and organ. So they've been confused a lot with another cell type that you are well known for studying, and that is, I hope I pronounce this correctly, pericyte or parasite? I, it's funny because I pronounce them incorrectly myself, and so they're pericytes, and so I always say parasites, and people think I'm talking about malaria too. or something like that. But yes, they are pericytes, and so, yeah, they've largely been mistaken for each other, and that's because they express very similar genes. And when you use one marker to identify any given cell type, a lot of people look at it as that's the defining feature. The expressing of that marker makes it that cell type, but that's not true. Many different cell types can, can express the same genes. Many different cell types can turn on or turn off a gene. And so we run into a lot of problems when we're trying to identify a cell type based on a single or even two or three different markers. And so, for instance, in, when you're talking about perivascular cells, um, especially within the brain, a lot of people have used PDGF receptor beta as a marker for these cells, and, and they've used it to look at pericytes. But in fact, other cell types, including fibroblasts and vascular muscle cells, also express PGF receptor beta. There's been many papers published where people have been identifying cells as parasites based on the expression of this one gene. They could also be looking at other, other cell types within the same region or other, other regions as well. And one overlapping function is the contribution to fibrosis, correct? 
Yeah, so I think that's still controversial at, at this time point. And so the reason we got into studying fibroblasts was actually that exact mistake that I was just talking about. We were looking at uh, how the brain responds to neuroinflammation. And so we were using a mouse model of multiple sclerosis. And we started staining for, for pericytes with this PGF receptor beta antibody. And we found this massive increase in the number of PGF receptor beta positive cells in the central nervous system following this inflammatory model. And so we thought, wow, parasites were, were proliferating and migrating over the entire inflammatory lesion and secreting this collagen-rich fibrotic scar. Um, but then when we looked more and we started analyzing these cells, we realized, hey, they don't actually express a lot of the other things that parasites express, but they do look like fibroblasts, again, which had largely been ignored. And so we did lineage tracing where, where we genetically labeled parasites and we genetically labeled some muscle cells and we genetically labeled fibroblasts permanently. And then you can do the inflammatory model and then you can see which one of those are the cells that are dividing. And actually what we found was that at least in the model that we were using, the fibroblasts were the ones that were massively dividing. They were dividing 70-fold in response to this inflammatory model, where we did not see almost any increase in the number of pericytes or the number of smooth muscle cells. So even though these cells all express this PGF receptor beta, at least in the context of the model that we looked at, it really seemed to be the fibroblasts that were the ones that were dividing. And we confirmed this with single-cell sequencing, showing that the cells that um, were expressing the, the collagen that was forming this fibrotic scar were fibroblasts. So why I say it's controversial is because in other organs and even other diseases within the brain, people have implicated pericytes as, as modulators of fibrotic scarring. And so it's very possible that different cells secrete the fibrotic scar or both cells secrete the fibrotic scar. But it's also possible that different cell populations haven't been identified properly because the correct tools haven't been used. So I think it's still really controversial or not fully known in my mind as to if we look at a whole series of different stimuli, which cells are really producing this fibrotic response, whether it's just the fibroblasts or just the pericytes or a combination of them. There's also, I've heard some plasticity, parasites being able to turn into fibroblasts. Is that also controversial? At least within the central nervous system, I do think it's controversial. Again, you know, the best way to do this is genetic lineage tracing, where you take, for instance, like a tamoxifen-sensitive Cree line, and we made it to a, a lock-stop-lox reporter, and then you can, with the injection of tamoxifen, you label a specific cell population. And then you let the tamoxifen wash out, and then you see how that cell population responds to an injury. And then you know that you've labeled it at the one time point, you can see what it becomes. So that's a typical way. But in many cases, a lot of the experiments have done just by kind of staining a cell and looking for a marker. And so then they say, oh, well, this marker ex is expressed in this cell type before the disease, and it's also expressed here after the disease, so this cell type became this other cell type. And it's really difficult to actually make that conclusion because any cell type can turn on a, a, a marker, turn off a marker, and so on. And so until we do the really precise lineage tracing with these, I think it still remains unclear, at least in the brain, uh, whether the parasites do become fibroblasts or not. In the brain, there's all sorts of studies that have suggested that parasites become fibroblasts, that parasites become macrophages, that parasites become neurons. Again, what's not clear is whether or not it was these parasites that were turning into these other cell types, or whether another cell population like a neural stem cell or a neural precursor expresses this marker of PDGF receptor beta or another marker and then is being confused with parasites. And so I think it's really important to look at that anytime you look at any experiment is to go, okay, what tool do they use? What conclusion do they make? And can you really make that conclusion with that tool? 
And even the best tools like lineage tracing do have caveats. What if a cell is migrating from a different region of the body? What if the Cree line that you're using is leaky and so on? So nothing is perfect, but you know, the better and better tools that we get and the more uh, different situations that we can use them in, we can get a better a answer to these questions. Maybe step away from the, the paper for a second here and talk more about the lineage tracing. This is a technique that I am really interested in. I've never done it myself, but I've always found it very complex and, and fascinating. What you're able to do with this is you're you're hitting them with tamoxifen, right, to induce the expression of this reporter's TD tomato, right? At that point of that tamoxifen injection, all of the cells that are expressing, like in the, the case of this paper, collagen 1A. 1A2, yeah. 1A2. All of the cells that are expressing collagen 1A2 at that time will be labeled, all of their progeny will also have that label too. Yes. So basically any cell that will later express collagen 1A2, uh, will, inducing it, will not express that reporter. It's only the cell that expressed it at that time. Exactly. So the key is to permanently label a cell and its downstream progeny, but do it at a time point where you're activating that permanent label at a very specific time point. So in this case, the reporter that we're using is, say, a TD tomato. So we have a lock, stop, lock, TD tomato. So in cells, it's not going to be expressed because we have the stop codon in front of it. But then when we have pre-excision of that stop codon, because it's, uh, sorry, not stop codon, stop cassette, is flanked by a LOX P sites, then we get a permanent change in that cell and then every downstream progeny. And so how we do that then is, is tamoxifen-sensitive Cree. So the, the, the promoter is going to tell us what cell type that Cree is expressed. And then the tamoxifen is going to tell us when we make that Cree excise the LOX P allele. What you can then do is say, choose a promoter, say the promoter of your choice. In this case, we chose collagen 1A2 because in the brain, it seems to be at rest, only expressed in fibroblasts. You can then inject tamoxifen at a given time point, let's say eight weeks of age. And now the cells that express the collagen 1A2 at eight weeks of age will then excise the, the, the stop set and express the tomato and all their downstream progeny will express it. But once the tamoxifen washes out of the system, which is a, in a couple of days, if another cell type turns on collagen 1A2, they won't then start expressing the reporter. So you're basically, you're permanently labeling a cells that express this one gene at this one time point, and then you're looking to see what they become later on. Before the tamoxifen-sensitive crease came out, people were using the non-tamoxifen-sensitive crease and making these conclusions that weren't always the case, again, if another cell type turned on that Cree line later. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the promoter for that Cree line later. Mm -hmm. So if you use a non-tamoxifen Cree, you're labeling any cell that has ever expressed it. Whereas if you're using a tamoxifen-sensitive Cree line, you're labeling the cells that express that, that specific promoter, genes from that specific promoter, at that one time point and then looking at what they become later. So what we see in development is many more different cell types actually express collagen in development. If you look at a collagen, at least 1A1 reporter, which we've done, and you look at the central nervous system during development, what you see is you'll see kind of different cells express collagen during development, and then they kind of turn it off in adulthood. So if you inject tamoxifen during development, I think you get a much wider array of different cell populations that were labeled, and you get all their downstream progeny as well. Even if you were just labeling the fibroblasts, if they were changing their fate during development, it would pick up those fate changes during development, and that's not what we were looking for. Our goal was to look to see how do these cells change only after this disease state. Right, right? so really just want to do it as soon before the, the challenge as possible. Yeah, you want to leave enough time for the tamoxifen to wash out because if the tamoxifen is still there and you do the challenge, then again, if another cell type turns it on and the tamoxifen is still present, 
then they will actually, because they're turning on the Kree, the tamoxifen is still present, you'll get the excision. So you have to have this balance between making sure that the tamoxifen has left the system, a half-life of a few days, and not doing too far away just because all these other natural stimuli may be happening within the mouse that could then change the fate of, of those cells. So there is a balancing act between those. One of the things that we like to do in the lineage tracing, if we're asking how an adult cell changes in adulthood, we do like to wait until most development has finished, most cell division in the body is finished, so you're not looking at these developmental changes, you're just looking at how a cell responds in adulthood. But and I, I also want to say what we did actually was combine it with single cell sequencing because there's a number of pitfalls that can come up with lineage tracing. One is that if, you know, you injected tamoxifen and you were like, okay, I labeled a collagen 1A2. What if there are a number of other cells that are labeled that you didn't know were labeled and it could be those cells that are, that are doing it? So one of the th really important things is to know exactly what cells you're labeling before the perturbation and what they become afterwards. So we combined the lineage tracing with single cell sequencing where you can then purify the tomato positive cells and then do single cell sequencing to ask what are these cells before and then you can also do that afterwards because that's one of the pitfalls that can occur if your Cree line actually labels more cells than you want. Mm -hmm. There's another pitfall that can become sometimes people have, have said one cell becomes another cell when it's cell fusion or whether another cell can kind of take up some cytoplasm for another cell and take in that reporter. And so these are all things that you have to look out for when doing such an experiment. And so one of the things that we're looking towards doing is, is not only doing it with like a cytosolic marker, but if you did it with a nuclear marker, maybe you'd get even more specific, mm -hmm. like a nuclear tomato. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, we do a lot of the sequencing in, in my lab. I have more experience with looking at that sort of data and, you know, all of the, the cool advances that the very smart programmers and mathematicians are developing with the, you know, the RNA velocity to kind of infer lineage through just the transcriptome. I don't know if you're familiar with the RNA velocity stuff, but yes, yeah, the ratio of introns to exons to kind of figure out directionality of the cells, it's its very cool. And um, I've been doing a lot of that, and sometimes I wonder how, how real it is. So I should probably do a little bit of that lineage tracing myself. I, th I think, like any experiment, we have to watch what we conclude from it. When you do one experiment, you have to go, okay, this is how I did it. And it's always good to validate it, but with another method. And again, so we validated our lineage tracing in this case, showing that the fibroblasts seem to be dividing and form this fibrotic scar with single cell sequencing. And actually in the paper, we, we didn't do single cell sequencing on the, on the lineage trace cells, but we had a collagen one reporter just to show the general gene expression of the collagen expressing cells were before and after the disease. I guess my big picture is it's always good to combine multiple different techniques we like to think, oh, this experiment's going to give us this answer, but it kind of gives us like a likelihood of that answer. And if you combine multiple experimental paradigms, you get more and more comfortable that your li likelihood is the truth, mm -hmm. the reality. Why is scarring in the brain important to study? Well, so we're really interested in understanding how the central nervous system reacts to injury and disease. One of the major things about the central nervous system is it fails to recover after many injury and, and diseases. So if you cut part of your peripheral nerve, it'll regenerate afterwards and you'll get recovery, not completely, but you'll get recovery of both motor and sensory. But if you cut a central nerve, like your spinal cord, almost everything distal will be gone afterwards. This failure to regenerate is incredibly important. And this is not only like with major wounds, the failure to regenerate after different diseases, like a stroke or multiple sclerosis, really makes recovery from these diseases really difficult. Understanding how the brain responds to different diseases, injuries, inflammation, degeneration, and how those changes, such as fibrosis, are affecting the recovery are really important. 
And so one of the reasons we got into this is we were studying neuroinflammation. Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune demyelinating disease. What happens is you have your immune system attacks your myelin, your white matter. And what happens is you get these lesions, in focal lesions within the white matter, where inflammatory cells cross the blood-brain barrier and attack and destroy the myelin. And you get these really focal demyelinating lesions. And in many cases, people have what is called relapsing or emitting MS, where they get a lesion and they get some sort of disability where it's loss of vision in one eye, loss of sensation, motor deficits, and then oftentimes those repair. And then they go a while without getting another disability, and then they get disability, and then it repairs. So you have the relapse and the remitting, relapse and the remitting. But over time, those relapses then stop repairing. The damage then stays, and so you, so you end up often going into a progressive stage. You don't recover the ability that you lost, and then you also get worse and worse over time. And so understanding why there is some ability to repair the early lesions, and then in the patients that have later lesions, why there isn't an ability to repair is a really important question that can really help a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis. And so there's lots of ideas why the, the myelin doesn't repair. One is that the, the myelinating cells, the oligodendrocytes, one is that there's inhibitors of their ability to remyelinate. One is that there's inhibitors of them being able to enter the wound to, to, to remyelinate. Another is that the axons, basically the, the substrate which they're myelinating, are lost. And it's probably a, a mix of all three of these different things. But the idea that this fibrotic scar can form over the lesion and stop these oligodendrocyte precursors from entering the, the lesion and remyelinating was really attractive to us. And we showed that when we got rid of the scar, we got more oligodendrocyte precursors entering the lesion. And we showed in vitro that this scar, the collagen one forming scar, was able to stop oligodendrocyte lineage cells from migrating. And so there's this idea that this scar that forms is stopping the ability to repair these lesions. And maybe that's what's stopping the remissions in relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis as the patient progresses in the disease. Beyond multiple sclerosis, this also is important in other contexts, such as traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. Is that correct? Yeah. And so, so if you look at scarring in, in the central nervous system, it's almost entirely been studying in spinal cord injury or, some, or traumatic brain injury. And there's this two-layered scar. First, this gliotic scar forms where these glial cells called astrocytes in the brain hypertrophy and they secrete different matrix and they kind of seal off the scar. And you get reactive gliosis in response to just about any perturbation in the brain. So any disease of the brain, you get this reactive gliosis. And this is not a good or a bad thing. There's some labs that'll tell you this is a good thing. There's some labs that'll tell you it's a bad thing. But they do a lot of different things that are both helpful for recovery and harmful for, for recovery. And so there's an excellent paper recently showing that they hold up trophic factors that are actually will support regeneration across the injury. There's other reports that show that they actually inhibit regeneration across the injury. So it's actually somewhat controversial in the field of what they're doing. There's some reports that saying when you stimulate them in a certain way, they'll actually secrete molecules that kill neurons. And there's other reports that if you push them in a different direction, they'll, they'll secrete molecules that save neurons. And so it's, it's a state, basically, astrocytes are a major cell population in the brain that responds to different stimuli and can have both positive and and, and detrimental effects on, on the brain. Mm -hmm. So probably a Goldilocks situation where too much is bad, a little bit would be okay. And, and there's different cell states depending on what the stimuli is and, and which direction they're pushed in as well, I guess. But I think that's the case with any sort of inflammation. People always ask me, when we study the blood-brain barrier, and in many different diseases, there's leakage of the blood-brain barrier. And so they ask me, well, why would there be leakage of the blood-brain barrier if it's bad? 
And my answer is always, I guess, I never use the term Goldilocks, but it's always basically what exactly what you're talking about with Goldilocks in that we need some ability to repair the brain. We need to let some immune cells in. We need to let some immune molecules in to repair and do different things. But when that gets out of control, then we get this huge amount of damage. And so every disease is basically you have a homeostatic thing. That's one is pushing in one direction, one is pushing in another direction. Just about every disease is that homeostasis is pushed too far in the one direction. So if you push it too far in, in the inflammatory direction, then you end up getting these inflammatory wounds and fibrotic scarring and tissue damage and so, and so forth. But if you didn't have any fi uh, inflammation, you would then be susceptible to all sorts of toxins and pathogens. And so it's really important to maintain kind of homeostasis in all, in all of our tissues, organs, and all of our processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everywhere you look in biology, it's, it's like that, right? Absolutely. You never want to have too much. Yeah. So that's why I think from a therapeutic standpoint, it's important to be able to really just turn the dial a little bit, not slam on the brakes or the gas. Yeah. And I guess this is a nice segue into the implications of your work in, in this report. Do you think this has the potential to change the way we treat scarring in the brain and yeah, I mean, I, people have been studying this gliotic scarring. I, I mentioned that after a spinal cord injury, there's this gliosis that forms first, this gliotic scar, and then secondary, there's this fibrotic scar that forms in the middle. And really, people have, have been studying the glial scar and the reactive gliosis, but very few people have been studying this fibrotic scar, so we actually don't know almost anything about it. We know that it occurs in spinal cord injury, but now we're starting to see that it's occurring in all sorts of other different injuries and inflammatory and different diseases. So our paper was about the multiple sclerosis model EAE, which shows that it, it occurs after inflammation. We've also found, and other groups have found, that it f occurs following a stroke, so hypoxia. Um, there's a really nice paper, Nature Medicine, showing that there's an increase in fibroblast activation following ALS, at least specific models of ALS. And so we're starting to see um, that in the central nervous system that this fibrotic scarring actually may occur in many different injuries and diseases. And so we think that we have to start understanding it. And there's many questions that we have to understand. First, the really simplest one, is it helpful or harmful? And it may not be a binary answer. It may be it helps in this case and it hurts in this case. And you can see that in spinal cord injury. There's really nice papers by the Friesen groups who showed that when you completely got rid of the fibrotic scarring, this wound didn't seal up. And so you just got this big hole in the spinal cord after spinal cord injury. But if you reduced it without completely getting rid of it, you can increase regeneration across, across the injury and you got a much better recovery from the injury. So again, it's not that it's good or bad if you, know, you need a little bit of it to seal up the injury, but too much of it will inhibit regeneration. So really understanding the role of it in all of these different diseases. And again, it can be different in different stages of the disease. It can be different in different diseases. Understanding the role, understanding the cell, cell type that does it, I think is very important, as I mentioned, because that'll get us to the mechanism, what's causing this to happen. And then if we know the cell type, we know the mechanism, we know whether it's helpful or harmful in the recovery, we can then hopefully develop methods to modulate it, to treat it, to increase it, to decrease it, to change the lo localization of, of the scarring. But really, we have to understand its role in each of these diseases first, then understand kind of the cellular mechanisms that are leading to it, and then understand the, the molecular mechanisms. Does your lab have two arms now, scar people and blood-brain barrier people? Kind of, I, I guess so. I have a few more arms than that. But yeah, so the focus of my lab has always been on understanding how the blood-brain barriers regulate in health and disease and modulating the blood-brain barrier. Just very quickly, what the blood-brain barrier is, is just a term used to describe the unique properties of blood vessels in the central nervous system. 
What it means is that blood vessels in the central nervous system possess these unique barrier properties that allows them to tightly regulate what goes between the blood and the brain, thus controlling the extracellular environment of the brain. And what we see in many different injuries and diseases like stroke and multiple sclerosis and traumatic brain injury, many of the diseases that we talked about is a loss of these properties, a leakage of the blood-brain barrier, and we think this causes a lot of the downstream symptoms and, and pathology. And so my lab studies kind of how the blood-brain barrier is formed, how it develops, how it regulates brain function, and then what causes this dysfunction during disease. And our goal is to then work out, can we stop this from happening? And so we started studying fibrosis because we're looking at the different vascular cells. And again, these fibroblasts that form this fibrotic scar following EAE are closely associated with the vessel. So I don't think it's so far away, but our really major goal is to understand how the blood vessels, whether it's the blood-brain barrier or the perivascular cells, such as pericytes and fibroblasts, respond to disease, uh, how they regulate the, you know, blood-brain barrier leakage, how they regulate inflammation, how they regulate wound healing, how they regulate scarring, how they regulate repair, and, and all sorts of different things. And so we're interested in all sorts of different aspects of the disease properties and how these different cell types kind of interact to regulate it. So, so it kind of does fit in with the blood-brain barrier aspect because we're really interested in understanding, well, does blood-brain barrier leakage then drive this fibrotic scarring? And can fibrotic scarring then also repair the blood-brain barrier or, or does it does it lead to consistent blood-brain barrier leakage? Right, because you showed it that the immune cell recruitment precedes the, the scar and when you inhibit the immune cell recruitment, you don't get as much scar, right? So maybe the yeah. leakage is contributing to the scar, the wound repair. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the experiments that we need to do is, is ask, can we get this fibrotic scarring in the absence of any inflammation or disease just by opening the blood-brain barrier? Is it just literally serum components entering the brain that cause activation of these fibroblasts? Or is it a more complex interaction between immune cells and, that are entering as well as, as parenchymal cells that are interacting? So these are questions that we're really interested in asking, trying to understand that. It's very exciting. I want to switch gears a little bit to the to the, the more uh, the more fun stuff, the the humanizing stuff. Sure, Let, let's, let's go for it. Let's go for it. So, I asked my friends in your lab what I should specifically ask you about, and one answer was I should ask you about Ben Bars. Can you tell me who Ben Bars is and what this person meant to you? Sure, Ben Barris was my Barris. Sorry, no problem. Um, Ben Barris was my graduate advisor at Stanford. So he, he was a professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Developmental Biology at Stanford. And I met him in my first year of graduate school. I actually met him at a dinner, and I just started talking to him ab about science. I just really fell in love with the way he talked about science. Everything was a big-picture question, and everything he studied was really basic in the best possible way. He wanted to understand the most basic aspects of how the brain works. And he asked big picture questions, and I just really liked the way he w he thought about science and way he approached science and the questions that he's asking. So I rotated in the lab and I joined his lab. Uh, he was my mentor for my graduate school, and just very important in in what scientist that I became, as well as what uh, mentorship that I became. Um, he was an advocate for for so many things in science, including women in science, uh, minorities in science people with different sexual identities and sexual preferences in science. And he was just a really a, a real advocate for trainees in science, always pushing the trainees to the forefront. Um, and so really it was an amazing, amazing uh, experience for me to be in his lab. And I took many of the things that I learned from him as a mentor, and I try to apply those in my own lab. I read an article, I believe you may have 
written it or contributed to it about him and his mentorship style. And a lot of it was about the things you mentioned, but also a lot about enjoying it and having fun and having the lab be a family in a sense. It seems from talking to my friends who are in your lab that that is also how your lab is. Yeah, you know, one of the most important things for me is to walk into work and enjoy myself. <laughs> you know, you go to work five, seven days a week. You want to walk into a place where you're like, I'm happy to be in this place. I'm happy with how people interact. I always just want to make my lab be a place where people really want to be there. And that's multiple things. One is because I want to be happy. One is because I, I brought people to my lab because I care about them. So I want them to be happy. And, you know, the third thing is, you know, people are going to be more productive when they really are excited about coming into the lab and happy to be in the place that they're doing their work. And so it's really important to me that people get along, that, that people help each other out, that people don't compete with each other, and that people enjoy themselves for all those different things. Because it make me happy, it'll make me enjoy myself, it'll make them happy, and, you know, they'll, we'll all be more productive in that way. How do you foster this environment? Well... I think it's important to foster it in many different ways. One way that I think is important is fostering it is by, is by making sure that people don't compete and making sure that people cooperate. I like to make sure that everyone has a really big picture question. And it's a very different big picture question than other people in the lab. And so if they discover something and they want to turn left or turn right or make a U-turn or they don't have to worry about, about other people in the lab doing the same thing, they have really the ability to do things. And, and to go places. And I think that's really important to have everyone work on a totally different project so that you don't have this competition between people where, where someone's always worried about what someone else is discovering. And then I also like to foster collaboration. You know, I like to make sure that, you know, everyone knows what each other is doing and that even though we're not working on the same projects, everyone knows what each other's doing and everyone has different skill sets. You know, someone might be more adept at this experimental technique. Someone might be more adept at another experimental te technique. And so that then they then help each other out. And I foster, try to foster this in many ways. One is a lab meeting where, where people present their work, but really have, in, have people engaged in each other's work. So that they're always there. They know what the other person's doing. They're asking questions. They're always willing to provide help for each other. So you can, you can try to foster these as best you can, but it only works when you have great people and, the, and, and they want a similar scenario as well. You must take re recruiting very seriously. When I interview people, I have rotations with people. I really want to make sure that people will get along and people have this idea where it's not about competition, it's about collaboration. I want to see that myself, and I want, I want to hear from all the people that are currently in my lab. I always tell them I'm not here to get you your best friend, but I'm, I'm here to get someone that you enjoy to work with a as well. Um, and hopefully maybe they'll be your best friend. So I think making sure people have projects, that was one aspect. Another aspect is... I like to do goofy stuff and games and things like that. And so I always try to engage my lab in doing those things. And I think that provides a lot of camaraderie and, and really gets people to be friends and, and so on. So we do murder mysteries in the lab. We've done escape rooms. We've done axe throwing. We've done go-karting. We, we like to do kind of goofy adventures together. I think that's a really great way for people to see each other outside of work and, and work together and, and kind of become friends and, and generate this camaraderie. And so I think it's important to do it both scientifically through lab meetings and other meetings, but also take a step back and just like, we're all people, like let's kind of enjoy each other as people and let's enjoy the differences because I think the differences are, are what makes us as great. Is it difficult at all to have a line for yourself with being the 
friend versus the mentor PI? Like, is that something you actively need to make sure that is there? Or do you feel like just going with the flow, it kind of works itself out? Because everyone in your lab, I know they, they still see you as a great mentor, not just a friend. I think it's a really important thing. It's something I think about constantly. I, this is not something I take for granted. This is something I think is very important. I, I do think that there has to be some sort of, of mentor-mentee relationship. And, and I always make sure that I, I look at what I think is appropriate and make sure I, I, I don't, don't, don't go past anything where, where, where it's, it's, it's just that. So it's, it's something that I think about constantly. I think about like, like if it's a happy hour, like how do I interact with the people in happy hour? you know, make sure I leave at the appropriate time and, and do, doing, all, doing all those different things. So to me, it's actually, while I, while I do want to breathe these camaraderie, I do realize that I'm in a different position than them. I do realize that I'm, in their, uh, that I'm their mentor. And I take that very, very seriously. And I make sure that, that I act accordingly. I think a lot of people ask for advice from their mentors. What I want to know is bad advice. What's some bad advice that you hear mentors giving often that you don't like so the bad advice for the research is 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 very simple and the bad advice is research is to is when when and it's maybe not even advice it's just how they interact with the students it's telling them what it, that's a good result or that's a bad result or that's a result that we want or that's a result that we don't want or rewarding someone when they get a result that fits the hypothesis and not rewarding someone or chastising someone when they get a result that doesn't fit the response you know what you're then going to get is people that that aren't going to do the right experiments. They're only going to do experiments that fit their hypothesis and so on. So to me, in science, the most important thing is, as a mentor, or one of the most important things, there's a hundred important things, is just to make sure that your people realize that we don't care what the result is. We have this hypothesis. The hypothesis is most likely going to be wrong. We don't care about the result as long as we get the right result, the correct result that's happening in biology. So we make our hypothesis. We test our hypothesis. We realize that our hypotheses are wrong, and then we try to work out what's really going on. So the best scientist tries to prove their hypothesis wrong as opposed to trying to prove their hypothesis is right. And so I think that's really important in how you interact with your students because I, I've seen so many instances where a, a faculty will reward the, the results when it matches what their preconceived notions are and not reward when they don't, and they end up getting people who will massage the data to fit them. And so I think it's really important to make people realize that a negative result is a great result as long as you did the experiment right. You know, as long as you're confident that's a result, that's a great result. And great results are just real results. And so I think, to me, the biggest way that I've seen mentors fail their uh, students uh, scientifically is not to encourage them to prove what they're doing wrong and just try to go for what's, what's right, try to prove their hypothesis right. I like that. I think the first instinct is to celebrate the stuff that lines up with your idea, but I think it must be a mindset you need to cultivate to be like, no, I just want the right answer. Yeah, and I, what I always tell my, my, my students and postdocs is, or all my trainees is that I've never had a hypothesis that's turned out right. You know, every time I go into a study, like this fibroblast project that we talked about earlier, our hypothesis was that this was parasites doing it. And then every test we did, it was like, no, this doesn't seem to be parasites. This doesn't seem to be parasites. And so I've never had a, a hypothesis that ended up being right. You know, we generate this hypothesis, we test it, we prove it wrong, but then along the way, we, we, we try to work out what's really going on. A real problem that a lot of students make is when they try to cling to their hypothesis. And they really, like, this is my hypothesis. If I prove it wrong, I have no project. I have no, I have no thesis, which is not the case. If you prove your pro project wrong, 
There's hundreds, thousands of projects that you could do afterwards. What you mm -hmm. want to do is prove your project wrong as soon as you can so you can pick another one. And then prove that one wrong as soon as you can so you can pick another one. Because you'll, you will f find one right. Where students fail a lot of times is they're so worried about proving it wrong, they do the outside experiments without doing the killer experiment. It's part and parcel of what I was talking about. Try to kill your project as soon as you can. And if you can't kill it, you've got a project. If you can kill it, great, let's move on. There's so many other really amazing ideas that you could, that you could work on. Do you have a favorite failure? A favorite in, in, failure? In science or whatever. Uh, of my own? Yeah. My, my students who've been in the lab, especially the ones that have been in the lab a long time, will tell you this. And I don't know if this, is, this can be considered favorite or least favorite, but maybe it's a combination of my favorite and least favorite at the same time. I, have, I present every couple of years a lab meeting, and it's all the un, unanswered questions in, that we have, projects that we've started and projects that we've stopped. And so I started a project when I was a graduate student well over a decade ago, and we still don't know the answer to that to that project and I call it my so I, well I present this lab meeting and I call it my Moby Dick lab meeting as my uh -huh. white whale that I've been chasing for probably 15 years now and so it was um, a story where we have a an antigen that we don't know what the antigen is but there's an antibody that binds to that antigen and it can rapidly and reversibly break down the blood-brain barrier and so we thought wow this is really interesting this this antibody can rapidly and reversibly break down the blood-brain barrier it must be binding to something that either is important for the maintenance of the blood-brain barrier or is a signal that's leading to breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So if the antibody is acting as an antagonist, then the antigen would be important for maintenance of the blood-brain barrier. If the antibody is acting as an agonist, the antigen would be like a receptor that's, that's signaling to break down the blood-brain barrier. So I did this big-scale expression cloning approach. And I found that this antibody bound to this gene called Nogo receptor 2. And I found it bound beautifully. It's so reproducible and so on. And in the next 10 to 15 years, I have been unable to show that that's actually how it's breaking down the blood-brain barrier. We've never been able to find Nogo receptor 2 in brain endothelial cells. We've never been able to show that this is how it's working. And so to me, it's a failure, I guess, because it's something that I've been working on for 15 years kind of a new person joins the lab, does a few experiments on it, and then it's like, realize that there's something wrong with this project and moves on from it. So that's my biggest failure, is being unable to finish that and really prove whether this is Nogo Receptor 2 or not Nogo Receptor 2. Have your efforts to elucidate this led to something else that yeah, you're so, proud of? Um, yeah, so in the end we have, even though we haven't found out what the antigen is, we've used this antibody as a tool to break down the blood-brain barrier and then study consequences of breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. How does the brain change in response to the blood-brain barrier? Can you get inflammation? We may do the experiment that I talked about. Can you break down the blood-brain barrier? Will it lead to fibrosis? Mm -hmm. So I've been, even though I didn't get there, we haven't finished yet this project, <laughs> um, it has led to kind of these other side projects that have produced some really interesting findings. So. Well, that's a cool failure then. That's yes. a, that can be considered a favorite. What do you do when you get stuck? Nothing's working. You need to clear your head. What do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. You, you know what's funny is is I actually generally think that, that work, and this is way before I was a scientist, I think that you always have to work and then step away from work and then work and then step away from work. I think if you work just so constantly, you never actually retain anything and you, you always need to step away from it. There's even studies showing that you need things to consolidate memory. And if you step away, you get new insights into these things. And so for me, I'm always working, stepping away from work, working, stepping away from work. I remember in university, 
everyone would go to the library to study for finals and I'd know where all my friends were on different floors and so I'd read a bit and then I'd walk to one and then I'd read a bit and then I'd walk to another and they all thought I was taking so many breaks but they all didn't realize how many other breaks I was taking because I was walking to see all the other people. I just think it's so important to take breaks. So not just like, you know, a, a day, but like within a day, like I'll take lots of different breaks. If I'm reading something, I have to walk away and, 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 and go to that. So that's just, that's not quite answered your question, but it really was answering the big picture words. I just think it's so important that you get, it's so easy to get stuck. It's so easy not to retain anything. It's so easy to not have a good big picture idea of what you're doing and, and not being able to move forward unless you're consistently taking breaks. Small ones, 10, 15 minutes, and also large ones, days or holidays or stuff like that. What has been the best investment that you've made for your career? To me, the most important thing were, were understanding the importance of mentorship. So really like spending a lot of time thinking about what it is to be a good mentor. How do I get the most out of people? And then also like spending a lot of time and, and effort trying to make sure that I pick great people and I try to work out what they need to, to succeed. Every person in the lab needs something different to succeed. They're motivated by different things. They have different personalities. And I, I personally invest a lot of myself and, and myself as a scientist, myself as a professional into really trying to, into mentorship, just trying to understand what's going to help this person succeed, what's going to help this person succeed, what's going to help that person succeed. I do want to be respectful of your time, and I, I know it's getting a little dark now, so I'll just ask a couple more questions Go if that's it. okay. If you could have a billboard metaphorically speaking, that you could plaster a, a saying on for all incoming PhD students? A couple words. What would it say? Yeah, that's a great question. Can I say two? Yeah. The one is, and this I say to almost everyone, every grad student that I walk into my lab, when I ask grad students, why are you choosing a lab? Why are you going to choose a lab to rotate in or choose a lab to join? Almost everyone will tell me the science or the project. If I ask that same student five, six, seven years later when they're graduating, why should you have chosen a lab? Almost every single one will tell you I should have chosen it based on the mentor. Who's going to make me the best scientist that I could become? To me, everything in science is good. I could change my lab and pick up a different uh, focus the next day. Every project is interesting. Everyone here is doing amazing work. But there's good matches for mentorship. So really, when you're starting grad school, it's really about the mentorship. It's you're here to grow as a scientist. And so which faculty member is going to be the right fit to help you grow as a scientist? To me, it's like really trying to understand that, both from talking to the faculty, talking to their current students, if possible, talking to their past students, really understanding that. Now, a lot of grad students don't understand who they are themselves and what they need as mentorship, but really focusing on that, focusing on like which, which situation, because it's not only the, the PI, but it's also the lab environment is going to make you a, a better scientist. And the second thing is, this is something a professor at Stanford told me like my first quarter at, at, as a grad student, and I kind of threw it away, and then I came back to it like years later. I'm like, yeah, this is everything. He just said grad school is all about learning how to ask a question. You know, a lot of people come into the lab and they're like, or what techniques do you do? Or I want to join this lab because of this technique, or I want to do this project because of this technique. Great scientists are, are successful because they have the ability to identify questions that are important, questions that are interesting, questions that are tractable, and questions that hopefully no one else in the world is doing. That's what makes a scientist very successful, because then you can have this niche where you can discover something really important that's doable and, and, and have your niche and really make, it, make an advancement. 
when this faculty member said to me, graduate school is all about learning how to ask a question, I was just like, you know, first quarter, I didn't even think about it. But then later on, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what all of science is really about. It's really about identifying what are the important questions. When you go to a meeting, don't look at what people are doing in the field. Try to look at pe what aren't people doing, are doing in the field. Where is the lack of knowledge? Where can I ask an important question that, that I don't see anyone doing? Once you understand how to ask a question, it's really easy to, to learn how to design an experiment and to perform that experiment. We can all learn how to do different techniques, or you can collaborate with someone else who does the technique. But what you want to do is learn how to ask the question and identify an important, an important question that isn't being asked. So mentorship and question. <laughs> Don't question the mentorship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always question the mentorship. <laughs> always question the mentorship. The mentor isn't always right. Do you think luck or hard work has contributed more to your success? I definitely do think that it's hard work because I do think that if you ask good questions, no matter what the answer is, you're going to get really an, a really interesting finding. It's not hard to find, to find projects and develop a project where if answer A is correct, oh, you have this amazing project, but if answer A is incorrect, then it's nothing. There's a lot of projects out there. But being able to identify a, a project where no matter what the answer is, you have an interesting result. And so I do think it's hard work trying to identify those things. It's not about luck about what you find. If you ask the good question, you're asking a conceptual advancement. No matter what your answer is, you can find something. And so I think that takes luck out of the equation. Listen, I, I, I spent a long time in graduate school. I had more failures than you could ever imagine, it's experimental failures than you could ever imagine in graduate school when I was a fellow at UCSF. When I was here as faculty, throughout my entire scientific career, I've had way more failures than any successes that I could have. But, you know, hard work, you, if you ask good questions, you'll, you'll, you'll get good answers at some points. I know people hate hearing that. They, they want to think that people who have our faculty has got there because of luck. But I, I do think that it's true. Why do you think most people think that? I, d I don't know, but it just... I, uh, well, one of the things I, d I do think, I, th I do think it's becoming harder to get a faculty position as, as science is growing. Um, there's more people in these jobs, and so I do think there may be coming more and more of an element of, of it becoming difficult, and, and so people thinking that then it comes down to a lot of luck. But I do think hard work and being able to ask important questions, you will be successful. In no way do I think luck is not a part of it. And luck, many ways, isn't just what results you get. Luck is like who you met along the way and who, who supported your career and who didn't tank your career and all these different things. So. Absolutely luck uh, uh, occurs in many, many different places. But I do think if you can ask good questions, you'll be recognized for them. What's next for you in terms of your career? Do you have a vision for where you see yourself going? Or is it kind of day by day, asking good questions, having fun? and Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, I do have a, a, a big-term vision where I want to have part of the lab making these basic discoveries of, of how the different cells, including the vasculature, interacts to regulate development and function of the brain and disease. But I also want to have another portion of the lab that's trying to apply those novel basic findings that we have to develop treatments or modulators of these processes to treat different diseases. I love both aspects of basic science, but also thinking that you can improve world health in, in the long run. So I do see the long-term vision is both to try to continue understanding the basic mechanisms, which is, you know, what I love to do, but also trying to apply those to develop therapeutics as well. Awesome. So I think that pretty much covers it. We'll 
throw a link to your recent paper and your lab website in the show notes and people can read the paper and maybe find your contact information through the website if, if they're interested in following up with you on any of this. So. Sure. Awesome. Well, Sounds thank great. you so much for, for doing this. It was fun. No problem. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> hey again, Kellen here. We recently got some listener feedback asking for an end of interview recap. This is a great idea, and so we are going to do this from now on. Here's my takeaways from this conversation. To have greater confidence in your conclusions, you must first validate your findings using multiple independent approaches. Don't just trust one method, as every method has its limitations. Focus on learning to ask better questions, not so much on learning new techniques. The best questions are ones in which all possible answers are interesting and significant. Many scientists make the mistake of trying to prove their hypothesis right. Instead, try to prove your hypothesis wrong. Constantly seek to kill your project. Join a lab based on the mentor and lab environment, not so much the science or the project. Take breaks. Big breaks, small breaks, medium-sized breaks. It's good for you, and it's good for your science. And finally... Have fun. Enjoy yourself and the people around you, but always be professional. And that's a wrap. Hope you all got as much out of this as I did. Thanks for joining us, and until next time.